Hello, and welcome to the GCU podcast. So my name is Hannah. I've lived in York for um, over 20 years now, but I'm originally from Shropshire, which is right on the border of North Wales. There are no cities and no motorways in Shropshire, so no one has ever heard of it. Um, And I live there with my mum and my dad, an older brother and a younger sister. Here is a childhood photo. I'm the one that was crying. and we had various dogs growing up as well. And it was a, a, a nice childhood. We had, uh, I went to a good school. I played lots of sport, had lots of friends. But if I'm really honest, my dad wasn't the best dad that um, he could be. He wasn't always emotionally available to me. Um, he, like, I know that he did his best in the situation he was in. But um, it was difficult at times. He went through quite a lot. And so he was around but not, wasn't always able to give me what I needed. He wasn't particularly encouraging. Even when I tried my best at something, it was never... It always felt like I wasn't quite good enough. It always felt like I was too loud. I took up too much space. Um, I was in the way. I was too needy. And so I, I learned to make myself smaller and quieter. I learned to play down my achievements and and hide my successes. Um, And I was very protective of my younger sister, who was much quieter than me, and I felt very responsible for her for a long time. And so without knowing, I grew up with this feeling of shame in my life, this feeling of not quite being good enough, no matter how hard I tried. And what this meant was that I then tried to earn love. I tried to be quieter. I tried to take up less space in the hope that that would be good enough. And actually, this was pretty normal um, among my friends. I don't know if if any of you can relate to that. My friend Lisa's dad moved out when she was 12, and she was really happy about it because he was gone and she didn't really like him. And my friend Sally only saw her dad once a month, and my friend Laura didn't even know where her dad was. So amongst my friends, I was like the lucky one because my dad was there at home. And so I learned to ignore my needs and live with my shame. And so when I went to university and my friend invited me to go along to church um, and try it, I said, yeah, sure, why not? I hadn't actually been to church since my secondary school dragged me for the Christmas carols. Um, And so I wasn't expecting much because that church was very stuffy and smelly um, and old school. But really what I wasn't expecting that day was to hear about unconditional love. I heard about how God is a father, not just any father, but one who loves me unconditionally. And I was blown away. This was such good news for me. I really didn't know how this was possible. I found out that he's a father who doesn't find me to be too much, too noisy, too big. In fact, he created me. And this was life-changing news for me. It was soul-changing news. And so that day, I said yes to following Jesus, um, and I've been a Christian ever since. But over time, I, I noticed that there was a gap between what I knew 
about unconditional love and what I knew about God and my lived experience, how I was living every day. I believed and still believe that I am loved unconditionally, but I wasn't always behaving in that way. I was still behaving in a way to try and earn approval and earn love. There was a gap between what I believed and how I behaved. And psychologists call this gap cognitive dissonance. It's something we actually all experience daily when our behavior doesn't match our beliefs. For example, we know that we should drink loads of water and not really drink too much coffee, but we all drink way too much coffee and not enough water. Not all of us. Some people are really good on that, but I definitely drink too much coffee. We know that like, our life is better if we exercise regularly, but then it, the alarm goes off at 6 a.m. and we think, do I really want to go for a run right now? And we, we don't go. And so our beliefs don't match uh, how we're living. Um, and in this gap, we often experience shame and the, the need for something to change. We can't keep living like that. Something has to change. Either our belief has to change or our behavior has to change. And so the belief might change in the moment. We might wake up and think, I'll go for a run tomorrow. We're just sort of like slightly shifting our belief. I'll drink more water tomorrow. Maybe, maybe the studies aren't correct. Maybe coffee actually does hydrate you. We begin to tell ourselves a different story because that's way easier than actually changing our behavior, isn't it? To just slightly shift what we believe. And shame makes it extra hard to change our actions. It's way easier to question whether 10,000 steps is just an arbitrary figure that someone's made up and it doesn't actually make a difference. It's easier to tell yourself that 16 cups of coffee is still a lot of water. And so I don't drink 16 cups of coffee. I couldn't drink 16 cups of liquid. For me, living in this gap between believing that God loves me or, um, or, sorry, or uh, trying to earn my father's approval made me really question, what am I going to do here? I can either stop believing that God loves me, I can change my beliefs, or I can step into the freedom around my actions and the approval that I'm trying to earn. And so this is a journey that I am still on, but there's a story in the Bible that has really helped me. And so this is a story that Jesus told to a group of people. So it's not something that actually happened, but it's a story Jesus told and there is truth in it. And storytelling was such a common way of teaching at the time that, um, that it doesn't really matter that it didn't happen. Because for those people right there, it was so important. And for us today, it's still a really important story. And of the people listening, some were Jesus' disciples. They were following Jesus. Uh, some were Jewish leaders who were against what he was teaching. And... Um, that, so there was like different perceptions in the room, and, but they all would have received it as a real story. So this is in John 15, if you want to have a look at it, but I'll just read it through slowly as we go. So this is called The Son Who Left Home. So Jesus starts by saying, a man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, please give me my share of the inheritance. 
Now, this would have been deeply painful for the father. To ask for your inheritance early is basically like saying to your dad, I wish you were dead and I just want your money. And so the father was a farmer. He owned property. He had cattle. He had staff. Um, And so one day the son knew that he would inherit all that land. Um, But really, they needed to learn the family business first of all and look after their elderly father. That would have been the expectation. So it goes on to say, nevertheless, the father divided the property between his two sons and gave half to the younger son. The younger son took all that was his and left, and he traveled far away to another country. Now, this wasn't just about leaving his father, but this was seen as like leaving the whole community. Jewish people lived in small settlements, little villages and communities. Families would stay for generations. So in that village, there would be aunties and uncles and cousins and grandparents. And the son choosing to leave it all behind in the hope of a better life was deeply uh, disrespectful to everybody. And it would have brought shame on not just the father, but the whole village. It says, there he wasted his money on foolish living. He spent everything that he had. And soon after that, the land became very dry and there was no rain. There was not enough food to eat anywhere in the country. So very soon, the son found himself hungry and in need of money. And he ended up getting a job with one of the citizens there. um, And he was sent into the field to feed the pigs. And this would have been the lowest form of employment at the time. So he's basically a skivvy, just doing the worst job. The son was so hungry that he was willing to eat the food the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's at rock bottom. It says the son realized that he'd been very foolish. He thought, all of my father's servants have got plenty of food back at home, but I am here almost dying with hunger. I will leave and return to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am not good enough to be called your son, but let me be like one of your servants. And so the son left and went to his father. So the son has decided to return home, but not as a son, in the hopes of just being a servant for his father, of just getting some employment with his dad. He would have been well aware of the shame that he had brought on his father by leaving that village. And so you can picture him making that long journey home, rehearsing what's he going to say to his father. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, dad. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against the, the village. And I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, father. You don't have to let me be your son again, but please let me be your servant. It says, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. He felt sorry for his son. So the father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm not good enough to be called your son. So he'd be looking down at this point, full of shame, just hoping that his father would let him come back as a servant. But the father turned and said to his servants, Hurry, bring the best clothes and put them on him. Also put a ring and sandals on his feet and get our best calf and kill it. And then we can have a feast and celebrate. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost but now he's found. And so they begun to celebrate. So there's three things that we need to know in order to really understand this story. So the first thing is that in this story, the lost son to the people listening at the time would have represented all of humanity. So right at the start of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve living in close relationship with God. 
but they left the father's house. They left Eden and they went looking for life outside of the kingdom of God. And then this story is repeated time and time again with Israel, also known as God's son. The Jewish people and all its people leaving God in search of something better and then coming back to God. And so at this point, when Jesus was telling the story, the Jews were in their homeland of Jerusalem, but they hadn't been fully reconciled with their father, the God their father God, they were waiting for that to happen. They were waiting for a Messiah to come. And so they were longing for this close relationship with God. Of course, they didn't know that Jesus telling them the story was the Messiah. They didn't know that yet. They didn't know that he was right there in front of him. But they would be waiting to hear, what is God telling us? Are we going to be reconciled? Now, the next thing that's really important to know is um, if a son left home and shamed his family, obviously he shamed the whole village, we've said that, um, but there was something called a Kezazar ceremony that would happen. So um, uh, if when that son tried to return to the village, the whole village would know about it because the whole village had experienced the shame and the whole village would know when that son's coming back. And if someone saw him coming in the distance, which is what happens here, they see the father sees him in the distance, perhaps there'd be shepherds out watching over livestock or farmers and they'd see him and they'd send a message to the village to say, you know, he's coming, he's coming back, he's coming back, have you heard he's on his way? This would not be an excitement, a, a point of excitement. This would be the call to then do the ceremony called Kezazar. And the whole village would come out like a welcoming party, but it was an unwelcome party. They would stand there and say, you are not welcome back into this village. They would bring out pottery and they would throw it at his feet in order to represent this relationship is broken and it is unfixable. They would smash it into lots and lots of pieces. And it, was, it would be a very, very shameful ceremony. This is the Kezazar ceremony. It would shame the individual and it would make him feel completely empty. And it would take place right on the outskirts of the village before that person could get back in to his home. And so for the people hearing this story that Jesus is telling them, this is what they would have been expecting at the end as they're listening to the story. And then it says the father hears the, sees the son coming and, and they'd be like, okay, and now we're going to get the Kesazar ceremony. That's the appropriate thing to do here. That's what, that's what you do. But obviously that's not what happens. And the final thing we need to know about this story is that men don't run. Obviously they do run, but... Um, Men in those times would not have run. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, he doesn't just run, he races. That's what the word there means. He races to reach his son. Um, but we have to remember that in those times, men didn't wear trousers. They wore long skirts. And girls, if you've ever tried to run in a long skirt, you know what happens. Your legs just get tangled and you trip up. So you have to lift the skirt in order to run. 
And apart, so apart from the practical element of it's not that easy to run, an older man in Middle Eastern culture, um, especially a wealthy man, would never hitch his skirt up and run. That would be really, really undignified, shockingly undignified. Um, to expose his legs and his knees would be utterly shameful. Um, and not even today, many middle-aged men will not expose their legs in this way. But here we see this father figure, this sort of um, wealthy, well-to-do man who takes his robe and he hitches it up and he runs through the village right to the outskirts, exposing the nakedness of his legs and shaming himself for the sake of gracing his son. And so when you know these three things, this story looks quite different. Jesus tells a story about a son who brings shame upon his father. And the crowd would have been listening intently to this story, expecting the Kazazar ceremony, wondering if Jesus is a prophet, bringing a message saying that God is going to do Kazazar to them. That would be going through their minds. But instead, there is no Kazazar. Instead, the father chooses shame. He takes shame upon himself and he runs. And why would a father risk his reputation by running to his son? Because he has to get there before the villagers get there. He has to be the first one there before the Kezazar ceremony is done. He runs to get there before the rest of the community. He wants to protect him from the broken pottery, the rejection, the statement by the community that it's broken relations with the son. He wants to show his son that he is not rejected. The father will heal the son's shame so that he can come home. Now, the son's point of view, he would have been terrified. He knew that that ceremony is going to happen, and yet he comes back anyway. He comes back hoping that he could come back as a servant. But he knows he's going to be facing that Kezazar ceremony as soon as he gets to the outskirts. Of the, of the village. He's practicing his speech. He's ready to repent. He's ready to beg if only the village can give him a chance. And so when the son reaches the outskirts of the village and he sees this figure running towards him with his skirt hitched up and he realizes it is his father, he knows this is the moment and he's ready to say sorry. But in his hand, his father doesn't have a clay jar ready to throw. He has a ring and a robe. When he reaches him, he doesn't throw pottery, but he throws himself into his son's arms and kisses him. He doesn't care that the son smells of pig manure. He doesn't care that his son is dirty and skinny and full of shame. He throws his arms around him and welcomes him home. And so the crowd listening to this story would have been stunned what kind of a father does this? What kind of a person shows this much grace and compassion? What kind of a father swaps shame for honor? The son knew his father was those things. But like me, there was a gap between his belief and the way he had acted. But in that embrace, the gap was closed and so if the lost son represents all of humanity, then the father in the story represents our father in heaven. God is our father and he doesn't give up on us. 
God never gave up on humanity, on Israel, on his people, or on us. He never gave up on you, and he never gave up on me. He calls us home. He opens his arms. He shames himself so that we don't have to be shamed. That is how much he loves us. So much that that he would bring disgrace to himself. He would make himself dirty and take on shame. If only we knew how much he loves us. And so 2,000 years ago, on the hinge point of history, separating the before and the after, God did something remarkable. He took on human flesh. The creator stepped into creation. The author stepped into the story. The playwright took the stage. And how did he do it? He hitched up his robes and he started running to find us. Jesus was born in a stable in the dirt of a manger, the place the pigs ate from. He literally came down into the messiest, busiest, chaotic, most political place to be with us. Jesus was born to young parents in a place they didn't even call home. He lived as a human. He got into the mud with us and he met us and he opened the gate to freedom. At the end of his life, he died a dirty, horrible criminal's death so that our sins could be forgiven and we might be reconciled with God. He closed that gap. He was judged in our place so that we can live the life that we were made for. There's no Kezazar ceremony. There's no clay pots. There's no humiliation. There's just an embrace from our Father. And what I bring to that embrace is brokenness and shame and longing for redemption. What God brings is a ring and a robe and an offer, an offer of life to the full. And the greatest gift this Christmas is that embrace that restores and creates family. It is perfect love whose affection is stronger than death and enough to bring resurrection. It's not neatly wrapped. It's not pretty or glittery. It's not a smug, polished little sermon. It's not a formula to success or a way to gain any kind of superior moral status over other people. It's not about being right It's not about we believe this because we're right. It's not escape from reality either. It's not something we do to feel good. It's something that was done for you. Actually, for you. The birth of Jesus is a raw, bloody offer of forgiveness and homecoming to ordinary people like me and you. He doesn't just come alongside our mess. He became our mess. And then defeated it. It's about love. If only we knew how much Jesus loves us. If only we knew. If only each of us knew. In our hearts. Not just in our heads. How much Jesus loves us. This is the grace of God. This is the offer. Would you stand with me please? Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for all that Christmas is. All that you offer us. We thank you for the ring and the robe. We thank you for honour. If only we knew, God, if only we knew how much you love us. And perhaps just where you are, you're feeling like, I want to know. I want to know more of how much God loves me. Perhaps you already do know, but you just want more of that. Perhaps you've never heard how much God loves you before. And so I just encourage you to just put a hand open in front of you if you want to receive more of this love. The hand just represents that we're open to this gift that is on offer to us. I pray, God, that you give us more. You send your peace to us. I pray you take away all the things that get in the way of us knowing how much we love you. How much you love us, God. just sense there might be some people in the room that are feeling bad about something and maybe that's the thing that's getting in the way and so I just encourage you in your heart to just say sorry to God and in the moment in the moment that you say sorry the embrace is there and there is no barrier between you and him Thank you, God. Amen. Let's sing together.